We're new and noteworthy in tech. Yes. Cool. Emphasis on new, not so much noteworthy. Hey everyone, welcome to Nash DevCast. We're a podcast about software engineering and the Nashville developer community. I'm William Golden. This week, we'll discuss the nature of software development with Scott Clossing, Jason Bynum, Lisa French, and Rodney Norris. So, hey, Scott, uh, you've been on the show before, uh, but could you and Jason maybe introduce yourself to the folks at home? Yeah, um, I'm Scott Clausing, the director of engineering at Emma. And I'm Jason Bynum. I'm the VP of engineering at Emma. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about the nature of software development. And uh, that title comes from a book uh, by Ron Jeffries uh, of the same name. And in that book, it talks about how to deliver software quickly and how to organize your teams around the work. The, the book kind of breaks it down into three points. Um, and it's keep, keep it simple, make it valuable, and build it piece by piece. So it being the software that you're delivering. Um, so here, uh, here at Emma, how, how do we define simple? I have a list of words I've defined and simple is not on it. Um, I don't think that we've made an effort to define simple. Yeah. <laughs> Just being really candid. No, no, that's, that's fine. Yeah, that's I, 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 I'm, yeah. yeah, I think, you know, I, I started, when I started reading this book, the Ron Jeffries book, um, the thing that really drew, drew me to it, right, was the idea that um, he, you know, he's suggesting that there are, there are lots of ways that you can organize teams. There are lots of ways you can embrace different software methodologies of how to deliver software, how to get through that uh, life cycle. Um, and the main, the main point, the main thing that he is organizing around is this idea of um, what, what you're doing when you're building software is providing value. And um, he, he does leave some, uh, some really interesting kind of openness in how you define value, right? Um, some of that value could be you know, people paying you money for your software, but some of it can be measured in um, how it helps a community or how it helps a certain group of people. Um, but it's always oriented around that value and then taking that value and realizing that um, the best way to have value or to, to be able to quantify it or be able to use it or be able to, to recognize it is for that software to actually be able to be used by somebody. So you orient um, everything that you're doing around understanding the value that you're after as, a, as an organization or as a group, and then how to um, get to that value as quick as possible, because it's only, you can only truly measure that value once it's in the hands of a user. But Jason, isn't that just agile? <laughs> that's a great, that's a great leading question. I think, uh, you know, Ron Jeffries was one of the original signers of the Agile Manifesto. Um, so I think it does feel very agile. Um, I, it's definitely not Scrum trademark, Right. Uh, as far as the methodology, there's not uh, there's not necessarily a focus on some of the ceremonies and artifacts that would be, you know, part of uh, a scrum environment. But I think it is really similar. Right. Um, you know, there are a lot of the tenets of of agile is about, um, you know, moving quickly. Right. And I think this is, um, you know, this is written. This book was written, you know, a, quite a while after the agile manifesto was created and signed. Um, and I think it's just the author's way of circling back and saying, but you're moving quickly with a purpose, right? It's kind of filling in that other half. Does the book go into how to find your value? You know, you can have a lot of different people bringing their ideas of what that means. Do you have a big meeting or like in post-it notes? Like how do you, does it go into that? 
Well, I, I think one of the really, again, one of the really interesting things about the way that he writes the book is it, it is very high level, right? It's a, it's um, he kind of has this pattern of um, exposing a really high level idea with a with a drawing, a kind of a really simple crude drawing to go along with it. Um, and you know, his 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 line that is equally liberating and frustrating is that value is whatever you want. <laughs> it's whatever you want it to be. Um, and the value and the value that you're after can change, right? Um, as you're, it can shift. It can become different things over time. So, um, I think you know, for us at Emma, you know, there's you kind of have to just. I think he leaves it open. Like I said, it is liberating because you can kind of adapt that to whatever your company goals are at the time. Because we're an engineering team, but we're an engineering team inside of an organization that has goals that has um, things that we're trying to accomplish. Um, and so it's really a matter of uh, you know making sure that we understand the value that Emma's uh, out 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 to achieve right and and provide to a user and provide to ourselves as a business um so he does leave it pretty open right and how you define it there's not like a um practical guide or a practical method but to say like here's how you you know summon the mount and come back down with your you know your chiseled tablets of value or anything like that so in part two uh the first chapter in part two chapter 10 is called value what is it and these are, uh, part two is all anecdotes. They're answers to questions that he gets asked when he talks about this. Um, and he goes on, it kind of clarifies, he said, value is what you want. It's what you care about. Um, and then there's this section where he says, take any two things you might do and ask yourself which one to do next. Which one is more valuable right now? It turns out you almost always know. And if you don't know, ask yourself whether either one of them is worth doing at all. Often you'll find out they're not. Um, so there's, there's an intuitive bit to it as well that's that's and i think another interesting point that he made in that same chapter is it's not enough for our teams to work on mysterious technical things that are behind the scenes that a user never sees when you deliver value the user sees it the person that's actually consuming your product and that's where you actually kind of have to like have a hard constraint on right it, it's not enough to just build a back end that no one ever uses or no one ever actually touches you have to have the full story for um for, for it to be valuable how did you all go about finding your value at Emma and how often do you plan to revisit for change? What kind of frequency do you reassess? I think, you know, going back to the, there's a whole chapter on, on planning that I really like where he talks about planning as a continuous effort. It's not something you, you do upfront and make a decision and then commit to it and stick to it. Um, it's something that you do upfront as a, a, a practice in thoughtfulness. Actually, Marcus Whitney has an interesting episode on YouTube, I think, where he talks about kind of the same thing. He says planning is really, really important, the, the, the practice of planning, um, but not the sticking to it as you go along. It should be something that's a continuous effort in being thoughtful. And so revisiting that value question is something that we encourage people to do all the time we tend to have a pretty good sense of when we're being asked to do something that is going to be really difficult to get in front of customers in any sort of meaningful, impactful way in a short period of time. And that's, a, that's kind of that first red flag. And it typically means that we don't understand the, the true problem that we're trying to solve very well because we're leading with a solution instead of leading with somebody's real pain or a real opportunity to help. We, so as, as people, and he doesn't really talk about this in the book, this is my own kind of perspective on this, but we have sort of an innate resourcefulness and innate curiosity when we're faced with a real problem. And as, as humans, we tend to be really good at figuring out quick paths through problems, um, but it's hard to engage that 
at work and in the process if what you're leading with is solutions and essentially work orders. How would that work when you have, if you're in a big organization and you have a lot of competing values or ideas about what those values are? And I mean, I'm sure that at Emma you have competing, you know, you have lots of different functions. And so how do you get everyone on the same page of what like the overall value is? I think a good bit of that is a collaboration point. Here at MO, we have a product team that kind of does all the market research on you know what features are valuable, what, what, what how we how we positioned ourselves positioned ourselves in the market, uh, what kind of features we should go after, and you know they do all that research. That's their that's their expert domain, right? They're they're skilled in that kind of stuff, and then they kind of bring that to the engineering table, and we collaborate and say, hey, we can take that value that you've defined. But what we're going to do is actually do, we're going to distill down the meaning of that, the, the intent behind that work, and deliver it in slices. We're going to say, first thing we can do is this. This is the most, th- this is going to get the idea across. This is going to bring value to a user, and we're going to step towards the overall picture over time. Yeah, I think that it's a, that's a really good question. You know, I think in any organization, once you hit a certain size, there's always, um, you know, the disparate units that are kind of after their own. Um, goals and that and that just kind of naturally happens right like you have a sales team that is trying to close accounts you have a marketing team that is trying to build a pipeline or trying to build impressions or con or you know however they're measuring their work and you know for us we have a support team that has their own goals around how they are uh, engaging with customers or how they're you know how long a customer needs has to wait before they get a response or before we resolve their problem Um, and then from the product you know we have the things that we want to build and from an engineering team you know we have you know that 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 concept that people always talk about about technical debt and refactoring and mm-hmm. scaling and all of those things. So you always do have a lot of com- really competing values. Um, and I think one of the hardest parts of um, trying to make sure that everyone's on the same page is um, number one, uh, making sure that those, that the, that the leaders of those, uh, uh, the, that part of the organization is in a lot, has a lot of that collaboration that William was talking about. Right. So that we're kind of moving together and understanding that. And then, um, and that's one level of that conversation. And then the next one is um, making sure that you're bringing, you know, the different leaders of those groups um, are responsible for bringing that context into the teams, right? Um, and being able to set that. And I think that um, it's a challenge. It's a really hard challenge. Um, and then to add to that challenge, um, when you're when you're working in a group that's fairly large, you know, with I think all in for us for product and engineering, uh, you know, from uh, the product owners to UX to developers to QA to infrastructure. You know, we're we're getting uh, you know we're a little over fifty right now, right? So, which it, you know by some by some measure that's a large engineering team. By some measure, it's a really small one, right? It just depends <laughs> on your position, right? Uh, your uh, your your point of view, right? I guess. Um, but it's also um, it's also a little bit of an exercise of understanding the value that you can control in the context that you can set, right? Um, you know, you know, we're not going to be able to necessarily make decisions or um, place value on things uh, for another group, right? Uh, so you you kind of have to play. Um, I always think about kind of like playing chess, right? Like to be really good at chess, you have to always be thinking a few moves ahead, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're kind of planning out. You know, there's there's a thing that I can influence immediately, um, and there's a thing that I want to influence. You know, in that in that next, and then there's that thing that I want to get to in the future. Um, and you're kind of trying to line it up, right? And one of the things that I love, some of the language that I love, and Scott and I always talk about, we have this kind of continued conversation around how shared language is so important, right? Like having, being able to say words. And uh, when I say a word and Scott says a word, you know, that you and Rodney and Will all um, understand the same thing, right? So as we, as we get, the more we can build that shared language, right? And so um, 
we like to pull phrases out and kind of just repeat them until you know they, they get kind of stuck into the the language of of, uh, of our group. And one of the ones that you know we're trying to pull right now is that um, you know one of the things the author says in the book is when he talks about planning. Um, he talks about the importance is not making a plan that's perfect and that you're going to completely execute. The, the important part is planning because that's the hard work, right? The really hard work, because when you plan, what you're actually doing is you're deferring, right? You're saying we're not going to do something else. And that's the hardest part of, of, of doing anything, right? Um, but once you've deferred, um, there's always, especially I think in software engineering, um, when you're working with old code or legacy systems or anything like that, you know, there's always the, the unknowns, right? And all those, those things that can come up. Um, and the language that he uses is, um, you know, it's not, it's not about executing the plan. It's about steering the plan towards the best possible outcome. Right. And I think that's kind of what, how, how you do that. Right. Is like you're, you have constant collaboration. You work really hard to be really transparent and set context wherever you can. Um, you have a plan, right. That is on multiple time views now, next, and you know, whatever the future is. And then you, but then you have to take that, that almost harder thing of saying, you know, you, you know, you, you want to be really regimented and be like, we're going to do, you know, we're going to check these boxes. We're going to do A, B, C, D, and, and it's going to work out. Right. Um, and you have to know that, you know, we, we're going to start with A and we'll get like half of B and then we're going to jump to seven. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just totally different. Um, and so how do you keep, um, just steering it towards the best possible outcome? And in, so in that same chapter, uh, where that quote is just a, a few paragraphs down, cause this is in the, the chapter where it's talking about managing natural software development. Um, there's the, you know, setting, setting that directional heading for the teams, but then there's the, the other side of it, which is, and then letting the teams do it. Um, so it's this, uh, quote where he says, try to push detailed organizational decisions down as far as possible. Use budgeting to control the size of efforts. Focus on results as much as you can and allow the people close to the work to make most of the decisions about what to do and how to organize to do it. And so this is actually really hard, um, not, not from a manager's perspective necessarily, but it's hard on the team. Um, that's a lot of responsibility in an engineering team, um, or in a, you know, I say engineering, a multi multi-discipline team um, to organize around all those things. And you know, we've recognized that, and that's one of the things I'm kind of proud of here at Emma is that uh, we're trying not to make sweeping one-size-fits-all decisions about process. Um, trying to make sure that the teams can align their process to the outcomes that they're trying to achieve. Yeah, any given team here is going to have a different way of how they do their work, right? Some some teams use Trello, some teams use Jira, some teams have daily stand-ups, some, uh, some teams use uh, Slack in the morning you know, or to, to do updates we don't prescribe how teams should work like in the, in the actual, you know, agile scrumminess of like teams are self-organizing. Like we've kind of take that not to the extreme, but like we really embrace that. We say, Hey, y'all are adults. We don't care how you do it. Do the work, just do the work that you commit to and do it with integrity. Just to go back to the pushing the details down to the teams. That's something that like, I like having that buy-in and that responsibility, and it helps me do better work. I also think it's it's kind of a, a hard adjustment for a lot of people because it's not the way a lot of companies work and a lot of other engineering departments I've been in work. So it, it can be a, a big adjustment, but I, I find it very freeing and just I would rather own that responsibility and, like, this is what I'm going to deliver and this is what I'm going to do and we're going to do it rather than someone saying, like, you know, we want X, Y, Z done and then, 
you know, you have six months to do it and all that. Yeah, it's definitely a big adjustment for, for, for teams that are normally um, used to going into planning and giving story points and say, this is how big this, how big this effort is and we can do it in XYZ number of sprints and things like that, right? You're, you are in much more uh, deliberate control of the type of work that you're taking on. Because um, like I said previously, one of the big things that we kind of strive for here is delivering with integrity. That integrity part is making sure that what you say you're going to do, you get done and doing it where it's healthy, where you're not burning yourself out, where you're not working, you know, over a certain amount of time, where you're not going, take, you're not taking the, ho- the work home with you and just killing yourself, right? It has to be, um, it has to be a health, healthy, healthy balance. Yeah, I think it's that can, kind of an interesting segue into something in the book that caught me off guard, um, which is the the way that um, the words product and feature are defined. So we've just been talking for a few minutes now about the work right and committing to the work and doing the work um and what but what is that right because this this book is is not about task movement it's not about task completion it's about delivered value um and it's really interesting um the way that uh it talks about a a product development cycle as what in in scrum you might call a sprint maybe a two-week iteration where it says that product is defined as um, something that is built completely in each small cycle. Um, in each of these one or two week iterations, we go through a complete product development cycle. That's kind of an interesting, interesting thought. It's different from the way that um, I think most of the time we think about a product, we think about it in a larger, um, more umbrella sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the context of this book, a product is what I think most of the time we would call a feature. Um, and a feature, the way he defines feature, he says, every product is made up of pieces, call them features or minimum marketable features. A single agile team that can really do this stuff produces multiple features every couple of weeks. Agile teams do a large number of small features every two weeks. A team can easily do 15 or 20 such features in a two week iteration. That's kind of a, it, it kind of flips the meaning of a feature down to um, the way we probably more orient around tickets and, and stories. Um, but the nice thing about that, if you really kind of dig into it, it's that at the feature level, he's just talking about units of something valuable, anything valuable. Um, Could you give an example? Yes, <laughs> I'll do that. So here, um, I'll give an example from a project recently uh, where so we're an email product um, and something that we're the, the best email product. <laughs> <laughs> and something that people like to do after they've sent several emails is to compare the performance of those mailings. And we have a, um, in the sense of the definitions of the book, we have a product for comparing mailings, um, and it has a feature of listing the mailings that you can s- select from. And uh, we ran into a constraint where we were only showing. I say only, only showing up to 500 mailings. Um, and so the team said, all right, well, let's, let's take a minute. Um, what are we going to do about this? We could take the next three weeks and implement um, some kind of you know, infinite scrolling, you know, really glamorous UI thing. Or we could say 500 is a lot of mailings. Um, mm-hmm. Not very many people have 500 mailings that they want to scroll through and pick some to compare. They're more interested in the things they've just sort of recently done. What if we just put a button on there, 
that says load more and then count the number of times it's clicked and decide what the next best thing is to do. Um, and that takes a day or less. Um, and that's, I think, really what, what we're talking about here is, is finding those, um, we call them tall skinnies. There's a visualization in the book where um, the, the value of, of a feature is- It's a picture of me. The, <laughs> the value of a feature is on the y-axis and the amount of time it takes is on the x-axis. And so a tall skinny is something that has a lot of value in the, in the y-axis and takes a little bit of time in the, in the horizontal axis. Um, so tall skinnies is what we're going for. Infinite scroll would have been a short and long. Mm -hmm. um, the tall skinny is the link. You count it, you learn from it. Um, one of the things he talks about when he talks about value is one of the most valuable things that we can gather is, is good information. How And how do you get that information? Like who kind of caught that and, and at what point in the process? And how did they know that this is not going to deliver as much value as we thought? So we just talked about um, one of the, the tactics that you can use from the management side is controlling the budget. And one of the things that you can budget is time. And so that was raised really quickly where we said, we have a week and the, the team said, infinite scroll will take three. And we said, mm -hmm. well, that's over budget. There has to be another way, right? And so that's, that's a really quick check back. And it, it's an it's a opportunity to be, be creative. So just like Scott said, if you can't do the big thing, within your uh, with your budget of time you'll find a way you know like life finds a way is that a saying like it'll happen so you'll, yeah, you'll from find Jurassic Park <laughs> you know <laughs> shout out to God, I can't remember his name godly whatever yeah and maybe <laughs> Dr. Heyman Dr. Heyman that's it how did you know that a lot of users don't have this 500 emails like what kind of things I, I imagine it's something to do with us. How do you stay in tune with your customers, your audience? I'll, I'll, I'll field this in a very short way, but um, I think one of the one of the ways is, um, and this is like I think one of the hardest things for some people um, is you just look. You know what I mean? Like um, the we have all of those for us. All of those mailings uh, for each account is in a database, right? Um, and and one of the things that we do here is. Um, we encourage every team um, because we do want to, like like Scott mentioned, we um, you know we do set that budget of saying that you have two weeks, right? Um, and so, but along with that two weeks, you have one a week before that that we call a planning week. Um, it's really a week to you know set yourself up for success, right? It's that time that you have up to a week to do whatever you need to do to fully understand, you know, the best way to deliver a tall, a few tall skinnies in that two weeks, right? Um, and so, I think you know a lot of times you start to get into planning of these things. You say, oh, well, if you have a lot of mailing, mailings, I need to do infinite scrolling. I need to do all this stuff, right? All it takes is one person to query the database, right? And say, well, you know, on average, you know, 80% of our accounts have, you know, significantly less than 500 mailings, right? Or, or you know, they're somewhere within some range and it just takes a second, right? And so um, I think what I'm really trying to say is that um, the more that you can make your decisions with data um, is, is, is the goal, right? Um, is that, so it's not, of choosing to do something based off, you know, feeling or emotion or intuition, right? It's like, you're just saying there's actual data out there. You know, we have for us, for us in particular, Emma, you know, we're a, a 10 year old company, right? We've had customers for a long time. So, um, you know, just ask, getting in the habit of making sure that you can kind of, you know, back it up with some, some information. And we have a lot of different ways to do that. Right. And just 
particular tools. I mean, at any time, if you have a, a data storage, you can get data out of it if you know how to format it and things like that. Um, but you can also, um, we use uh, things like StatsD for counting, so you can go back and look for counting. We have uh, we use, we uh, use a product called Intercom, uh, which will allow us to um, basically uh, coll uh, collect events and then be able to search and segment on them and get different information uh, about how people are using the product and things like that. So we have a lot of different uh, tools kind of at, at our disposal to be able to um, to get at that data. And when you say the the planning week, um, mm -hmm. is that like that kind of the tickets have been uh, established and then the, like the engineer is given the ticket to kind of think through it or no. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good way to, I mean, that's a, a traditional a scrum or like agile team would normally like have a planning day or a couple of days to like groom, like there's like a groomed backlog and all that stuff, right? You have that as part of a scrum scrum team. Well here, what we do is we talk to a, 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 the product owner or product manager and they're going to tell us what, what it is that they're after. Right. So part of the planning week is going to be determining how do we actually deliver something within the next two weeks after the planning week's over. So that solves I, that problem. That solves that problem. And it's not, hey, you have to build a button that does this thing. And when you click this, then the thing mm -hmm. pops up and then there's a modal and then you have a drop shadow and all the fanciness, right? Like that's is implementation details. And that's overstepping the kind of the bounds there between what the intent is versus what the actual code is, right? Does that make sense? And yeah. Then, and this is the engineers uh, yeah. talking right to product. The engineers and product collaborate at that point. That's what the planning week's about. And um, it, it doesn't even have to be an entire week. It could be three days. It could be whatever. But you have up to a week to kind of just determine um, what it is you're doing. And then part of that planning week is, okay, so say you're building, uh, you're going to change the segmenting service that we have here, right? Part of that would be, hey, I'm going to go into that code. We've already determined what, what it is we're building, but I'm going to go into that code because when I was doing my discovery, I've noticed that an area of the code is not really up to snuff. It's not really what we want it to be. So we encourage during that planning week to go in there, refactor, make it more testable, make it more maintainable so that when you do tackle that work, you're able to do it um, in a more sustainable way. Does that make sense? Wow. Like right now, if I had emoji face, it would be the one with hearts in the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the author really hits on that in the book, right? Um, he in, in that part too, where he's given anecdotes. Um, and I love the imagery he uses where he talks about, uh, there's one where he kind of uh, uh, attributes to like lava, right? Like finding a path through lava. <laughs> um, but he but he really kind of hits on this um, idea of like, you know, co code over time becomes like a series of twisty passages, right? So so just take the time to untwist them, right? And, and it's not, and I think the hard part is that in, you know, uh, I've been doing software engineering a long time and, Typically, when you say to a software engineer, "Hey, we need to untwist these, pa pa uh, you know, these these passages," they'll say, "Great, I'm going to write it all over. I'm going to start from scratch, and I'm going <laughs> to use this new technology that I'm interested in." Right? And it's uh, it's the I think it's a true like kind of mark of um, a senior uh, mindset, right? A more experienced mindset, or uh, and a lot of times it doesn't even have to do with experience. Just someone who is um, in the in the mind frame of of providing value and understanding the context of the business of what they're trying to do that can say mm -hmm. i don't need to rewrite this right i can spend a little bit of time and just make a nice landing pad for this next feature that i'm going to develop right like i just want to clean it up clean up my uh, i think he even uses the language of like cleaning up the campsite right mm -hmm. you know what i mean like you know you, you know I'm, i know i'm going to be here for the next two weeks so i'm just going to take a little bit of time ahead of it and just clean up the campsite a little bit uh which is, is just uh i think a really um 
you know, the, the cool thing about this book, and I, I probably should have said this from the very beginning, is that there's nothing revolutionary in the book. It's all just common sense, right? And you read it and you go, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it just makes a ton of sense. And that was one of those things for me that was like, it's really hard, it's really easy to forget that, right? Yeah, I think one of the really cool parallels between like um, a more traditional scrum approach and like what the book is kind of advocating is... Um, you know that that planning week, right? That that well, actually, does the book even advocate that? I'm not sure if it, if it does. No, not really. Okay, well, so what we do here at Emma, right? Yeah. Um, versus like the, the traditional uh, approach. Um, you know, when I was in product teams and I was we were doing that um, years ago, it was really frustrating to feel like I could commit to some work without ever actually going into like doing a deep dive and saying, yeah, I, I, we can do that, right? Like, but it's hard to do that when you only get like two days. For plan, like a day for planning and then a day for um, grooming, right? Totally. It's really hard to like do that with integrity. And like one of the things that we do here is really try to, like I said, we, I keep saying it, but we really want to make it where when you say that you can do something, you, you've got you've got data to back it up, you've got you've got the time to do it, and you just feel you can feel successful doing it. Um, you know, it's sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's really hard uh, to still be able to do that, but. Um, we just try to remove all the constraints. We don't want to. We don't want a process to, to block anybody. If that makes sense. So we, we've used a, a few words here. Um, I just want to string them all together in a sentence. Uh, so we've got a um, in the sense of like vision statement, mission statement. We have a, a mission statement for the engineering group, which is to deliver value in time with integrity. And we came up with that string of words before we'd read this book, and so this is, uh, is really kind of fascinating how well it aligns. Um, you know, delivering's all about getting things in production, on for accounts, measurable against their intended value. In time means, you know, if we've, if we've budgeted two weeks, we're not waiting two weeks to get something on the shelves, right? We're not stocking up inventory for two weeks before we ship the truck. We're trying to get things as they're, um, as they're ready which is great, right? It gives the, the product manager an excuse to, um, to call a customer back and have more interaction. It gives us time to collect more data. Um, one of the things that the, the book doesn't directly call out that I thought was really interesting um, in an obvious way uh, is the with integrity piece. And so when we say with integrity, the simplest way to, um, to blow that up is to say, with respect for myself and the people around me. Um, and one of, one of the things that we do to be respectful to the people around us is to make sure that the work that we're doing is, like Jason said, right, leaving the campsite better than we found it, um, that the new stuff we're building is something that someone else is going to be able to come into and they're going to be able to camp out there for a couple of weeks in the future. Um, the book does talk about quality, and I think this is one of the, the places where... Um, I don't know that it's meant to be, but it kind of ends up being a little bit um, possibly controversial in talking about the responsibility of testing. And Yeah, I was going to ask, is, are there any implications for QA or quality that are kind of discussed in this book? Yeah. <laughs> it's one of our favorite parts. It really is. Go so, on. Um, and well, where does that come in in the process? So that's exactly exactly the the best question that you could ask there, um, and the answer is that it's not um, a point in the process where it comes in, it is the process. And so... What? Yeah. <laughs> so the, I'll, I'll, again, I'll just read the quote from the, 
the book, the subheading is eliminate the test and fix finish. Many projects end with a test and fix interval that seems to drag on forever, furrowing into our soul. This can even happen when we work feature by feature if the features aren't really done. It needs to be nearly free of defects all the time. To be sure we're free of defects, we need to check everything all the time. And so the process of developing software is the process of also verifying that the software we're developing works. He calls it out really directly, you know, in the book by saying, you know, when you ship code, you know, if, if you do give code to a QA in the process of your organization, then you should personally be very um, confident that there are no defects in it. And then he very directly says, and the way you do that is because you've tested it, mm -hmm. right? Um, which is just, you know, I think to go back to, uh, you know, I think it ties into the same idea of like a planning meeting where you bring up a bunch of engineers to talk about an idea to plan and groom cards. Um, you know, I, again, I, I, per, this is just personally, I've worked with a lot of uh, engineers and um, no one's do, no one does the pre-work before coming into that planning meeting, right? Like people come in and try to plan those cards and you're trying to look through the code like while you're talking about it, you know? I think it's the same idea for me in quality, right? Like there's there's this um, hesitancy to, to even be willing to test, right? Like, um, you know, I've, I've seen it in a bunch of different ways, uh, you know, where it's like, well, I tested this thing and, and it works. And, um, you know, especially for, I think front end has it probably the heart in the heart is, is in the hardest boat. It's like, I tested it and it works. And, uh, and I gave it, so I gave it to the QA and it's like, and you only did it in, you know, Chrome. Yeah. And, uh, I was going <laughs> to ask what, um, what kind of standards or checklist or wh what are you looking for? Just pure functionality or across browsers or SEO accessibility? What kind of... Uh, Luckily, we're behind a, a, a password, so um, <laughs> we don't <laughs> have to worry about the SEO part. Oh, yeah, um, right, right. Yeah, uh, or a bajillion other things that Lord. are important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So practically at Emma, what we've been trying to do is make sure that the people that we have on our quality team are working in front of and with the engineering team and not behind it. And um, how does that, what does that look like? So what that looks like is during that planning week when we are talking about what's the problem that we're really trying to solve and we're working out what's that first slice of a feature that we're gonna try to get out to start measuring the impact that we can have. Um, what the QA is doing is saying, okay, well, if, if this is the solution, if this is the direction that we're headed and we're gonna be changing this or bolting something on there, um, there's probably going to be some ramifications in these other parts of the application that you know I'm aware of because I use the app in a broader sense than sometimes some of the engineers do on a daily basis. Um, they just have a, a wider lens. Mm -hmm. And so we encourage them to do a few things. Um, it could be as concrete as creating a test plan, um, but it's probably more likely just reducing the friction for the engineers to be able to do that testing by setting up um, users with a certain profile in um, a non-production environment and getting t data into their account um, to set them up to be able to use that feature and turning on flags and you know getting everything kind of set up uh, for the, the you could say the story that you're trying to test so that the developer can go in and as they're working iteratively run through that with with the right data with the right state in the app 
Yeah, one thing I've noticed in a lot of our pull requests lately is, you know, in, as part of the PR in the description is how do you how do you test this? So part of the responsibility of the of the reviewer is to actually do a smoke test as well. They're going to have to pull the code down, run the test, but also run through the app to make sure it's doing what it's prescribed to do. And uh, so in the in, in the snippet of the on GitHub, you know, it says here's how you test it. Step one through fifteen, right? Here's all the actions that you can take. This is the, this is the, this is how we expect this to behave. And especially for bug tickets, you know, like this is how you reproduce it. This is how you t- how you test that it's fixed. Are you guided by the problem that you set out to solve and just the functionality of that first? I think a lot of it is going to be um, by the time it reaches the point where it's being reviewed and being handed off to QA, the visuals are probably going to be there already. Um, and it's, it's probably going to do what you want it to do. Um, but what we're looking for in, the, in the, that QA um, dynamic is did anything else change because of this work? Did something break unintentionally? Um, and in the feature that you're working on, ha- has have you accounted for all the edge cases? If someone clicks this button and then the next button and then three levels deep, this, all of a sudden the, the input form is populated again for, for no reason, right? That was the, the kind of things that that an automated test really couldn't catch, but something that a user could, could like mm-hmm. kind of fuzz, right? Um, that's the kind of stuff that we're, we're kind of looking for. And one of the challenges on the management side is making sure that there's the right kind of pressure applied to the teams. And this is something that, that uh, really stresses in the book is that there, there are certain pressures or certain constraints that are that engage your creativity, um, and there are some that don't. Um, so there's this quote here I like, and there's several that you could pick from. I'm just going to read this one. It says, under pressure, teams give up the wrong things. They don't test enough. They leave the code in poor condition. This reduces value, increases the delay to getting the value, and reduces the value they can deliver later. Under pressure, teams test less and therefore put more defects in. There are other parts in the book where he talks about making the decision at the, the point in time where you're, you're sort of at that deadline where you're deciding which visible defects to release because right. you have to. Um, and that is painful, right? The kind of pressure that leads to those things is not healthy. Um, and so I'm bringing it up because all of this stuff takes real time. I think there's going to be people that, that hear this and they say, that's slow. It's slow to use the application like a user. It's slow to click three buttons deep. Um, but without doing that, you, it's very hard to have real integrity around your work. And it's hard to understand from the perspective of that customer that you should be getting to know whether or not you've actually addressed their problem or not. And how do you get that buy-in from people that may not understand the coding aspect? Do you come at them with data or horror stories or like, you know, to, to be able to take this time to plan and catch these things more in advance? I think sometimes a lot of companies just, they don't understand it till they experience it. Does that make sense? How do you get buy-in from people that are further away from the code or understanding the, the impact of the work that the engineers are doing. So your question is, um, how, how do we get, like if we decide to work in this process where we're going to take the time to plan and we're going to you know, plan well. And then how did you get that week of planning instead of just commit, commit, commit? <laughs> <laughs> um, I just said I was going to do it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, that, I mean, that's half true. That's a joke, but, um, no, um, we got it. Honestly, we got it um, just by having some pretty frank conversations, right? Um, I think that 
um, for us in particular, um, and I'll, I'll take this time to kind of put a caveat as, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is the ideal, right? And it's a process that we're working through at Emma. Right, right. right? Um, and it's a process that every company works through. And so uh, there's a thing that you aspire to be and there's the thing you actually are. And again, mm-hmm. it's about guiding toward the best out- possible outcome. And we're on the path. We're not necessarily, you know, we haven't reached enlightenment yet. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I think it was just through a few conversations, right? Um, typically... And this has been at, at, at companies that I've, I've worked at previously, too. Um, you kind of get in this habit, even if you call yourself doing agile, of um, having an idea, um, thinking it's a good idea, thinking it's good enough that you want to build it. Um, and then you immediately go into like a mock-up phase, right, where you're kind of creating, you know, either a low or a high fidelity mock-up. And then that eventually gets handed to someone. And, and what you're really doing is many waterfalls, right? It's like it's, it's not just agile. It's just handing, some, handing a team a spec. And uh, then they're going to budget, they're going to use their story points as a budget, right? And tell you how long you're gonna, it's going to take. And they're always going to be wrong because estimating is very, very hard. Um, and so you, what you end up doing is you end up having these projects that um, are encompassing of, you know, a kind of a grand thing that are harder to build, harder to test, harder to maintain, harder to stay on track. And, you know, you set out to do something that is seemingly small um, and you're, you're half a quarter, a quarter, a quarter and a half in and you haven't delivered, right? And and again, back to the, the central focus of the book is that it doesn't have value until a user can use it, right? Like you're just spending at that point, right? In terms of cost. Um, and I, and I, we just had some, you know, conversations with the leadership team around uh, the goal that we set for engineering that I wanted to set uh, through a lot of conversations and a lot of um, just kind of really working on like, what is that thing that we that we want to focus on as an engineering leadership team is that what I want our team to be known for is right now not necessarily putting out the best most amazing innovative features. I want to be known for being dependable. I want to be known for we're not going into you know the dark side of the building, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> uh, the nerd cave or whatever, and and coming out every quarter and a half with a new feature. I want every two weeks for there to be something that is out. We're constantly just dropping bits of value all the time. Um, and I, I don't, I didn't at the time care as much about what it was, right? And I think that's the conversation that we had is like um, how I want um, everyone in the company who's not in engineering to know that what we do is deliver value every two weeks that they can look forward to when they come to a product demo right? That what they're seeing is stuff that's in production and not stuff that we're working mm, on and yeah. you're going to get it eventually. Right. And you start to build that familiarity. Right. And we, we, um, Scott kind of turned me on to this language of, um, you know, talking about it in terms of budgeting and portfolio management and like, you know, uh, fiduciary planning. <laughs> um, but, uh, where, you know, where, when you don't do that, when you're not putting things out on a regular clip, when you're not constantly shipping, right? Um, what you're doing is you're building on credit and your credit runs out mm-hmm. as a team, um, as a, as a leadership of a team, as an engineering team, it just runs out. Right. And what we wanted to say is, you know, no, we, we don't want to build on credit. You know, we want to build on the fact that, you know, we take, you know, whatever we're taking, like we're giving it right back. We want to keep our, you know, we're paying off our credit card every month. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> whatever, however you want to talk about it. But, um, and I, and I think that, you know, here just anecdotally, um, it was kind of, it kind of got to the point was like, we'll try it for a while. 
you know yeah and um and we were given i think a little bit of uh a trust um and a little bit of uh credit credit. <laughs> credit up front uh, to give it to give it a go and it's um i think it's really uh we're really starting to hit a groove and with it um and people are starting to see the value of um of being able to 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 deliver uh with with a with a cadence you know what i mean that is um dependable how long ago was this and and um what kind of um like when did you start picking up this positive response or feel like you got in a groove oh we're still getting in the groove um <laughs> yeah like jason said this is a definitely a work in project progress and there's a there's maybe a couple of ways to um to look at this on one side we're trying to reduce waste on the other side we're trying to manage risk um and i like that uh, the author in the book he really he he actually comes at it from both of those angles there's a quote where he says Late in the game, we can't do much to cut costs. We've already written requirements for things we'll never get. We've designed and even written code for things we'll never complete, and all that work is wasted. So we're really, um, we're really trying to, uh, to manage risk, and we're trying to eliminate waste. Um, and that's, that's kind of like taking that analogy. It's really at the heart of the book, um, and it's at the heart of the, the planning week. Um, yeah, we... we um we uh, started the first time we ever tried it was uh in q4 of last year um and it did not go well um <laughs> it was it was very very bumpy um and uh it, w- it was difficult and then we um kind of you know d- took a little bit of a breather i think over the holiday and, c- and came in hot um in q1 um i think the first time like just from my from my viewpoint um and from you know the peer group that i work with it, on the leadership side of the business um the first time that it, uh, I think people really saw it was the first time that you get a couple of those features that drop, right? Was, mm-hmm. And for us, I think one of them was something that Rodney was really involved with was, um, uh, you know, in, in, in our industry, people have, uh, people want to send email, um, but they don't, they, they may have a list of people that they'd never want to send to. They want a suppression list. Mm-hmm. And that was a feature for us that had just been talked about for a long time. And there, for one reason or another, just, uh, you know, couldn't make it happen, right? And um, by really trying to understand the problem that you're trying to solve, right? And what we, the one of the other phrases that I, I love and that we try to repeat often is that, you know, the job of an engineering team is to understand the opportunity that a product manager or product owner is putting in front of you. But you're also the one who's responsible for understanding your inventory, like what you have and what you've built and how to use it to your advantage so that you're not coming at every problem as like a green space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, you got to the point where we got to say, how do we use what we have and just make this happen? Um, you know, and, and in two weeks, this feature that we had been talking about for years and could never get to, you know, Rodney and his team put out a version that we could um, put, put behind a feature flag for a beta for customers and got really great feedback, you know, when we turn it on. And that's the other half of this, right? Is that the reason why it's so important to get this is because um, I just have a bent um, and that I've been really trying to push through that is, is not a new bent. It's not a new thing, but it's just this idea of like, you know, when you, when you think you have a good idea, you're probably wrong, right? You know what I mean? Um, and so the, the trick for all this is the other side. And I think uh, we will be amiss if we don't catch, catch this point is that when we're talking about value, we're talking about the customer, 
right? We're talking about providing value to the customer. And so the way that you do that is not by going, man, I have the, I understand my customer. I have this great thing that I know that they're going to love, right? And I'm going to go spend however long it takes. And I'm going to get it out. No, you know, we want to take, we want to carve that thing down. You know, we want to, to just shave it down to its tall skinnies so that we can put it out fast and put it actually in front of the user and let the user say, great, keep doing it, mm-hmm. right? It, or it would be better if it had this, mm-hmm. right? Um, or say, that's terrible, right? And then we didn't spend a quarter, um, you know, building the wrong thing. We spent, two, we spent two weeks building the wrong thing, which just feels better, <laughs> right? Totally. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is th- that, that example of that suppression feature, you know, we got to put it out, we got to get some feedback on it, and, and it was, it turned out to be enough for right now. We didn't have to keep going. We got to shift to the next thing, right? And I think that was one of the moments that um, started to turn the tide. And I think then at the end of the first quarter, looking back and, you know, if you count it by those small features or by those features, I think we we delivered like as an engineering team, 12 features in the first quarter, which was a huge improvement for us, right? Because we were still getting better at the planning. So they were mm-hmm. some of them were significantly, you know, kind of big features. Um, and we also went like one of our, main code bases for our application um you know we doubled um from to quarter over quarter from q1 last year to q1 this year um we deployed to production uh over um over two two times the amount right um which i think is just another way that you can start to see those tangible things of like we're just getting things out you know and and that's the that was the purpose and when you start to see that um you start to see the customer feedback coming in mm-hmm. start to see being improve improvements you start to see people in community saying thank you know in our community forum our customers saying thank you this is what i've always wanted mm-hmm. um you know that's where you start to get the you earn the you you know get to pay down that credit and the leadership around the house and everything gets to uh, starts to really buy into what you're doing so it sounds like doing this really well it requires the engineer to have like a real understanding of who the customer is and what their real problems are. How, how can you help an engineer like know that? So I, I really like talking about this. Um, there's a, a great quote in the book where he says, when we deploy our products often, delivering real value to our users, we often find that we can stop far before the time and money run out because we've already done everything customers really need. And this is the beautiful thing about, um, about really at the engineering level, not just at the sort of the product manager or account manager level, but at the engineering level, really understanding the customer. There's a side of it that's, yes, it's about customer empathy. Yes, it's about um, you know, wanting to be able to be a creative part of the conversation. But really, it's about being able to stop and call something done. Um, and that's enormously valuable. I think one of the things that um, in, we'll, we'll talk about when we don't have that, what do we do? We default to locally optimizing within our discipline, whether we're an engineer or a QA or a UX person or even a product person, instead of focusing on the thing that should be the point of collaboration between all the disciplines, which is the problem we're really trying to solve for a real person. Um, and when we locally optimize, we focus on, you know, what's the best library mm-hmm. for this thing, or, uh, you know, like some engineering thing that's ultimately just not the point. It's important, but it's not the point. And these things can drag on and drag on and drag on. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's super important to understand the customer. One thing we've um, 
we've just started doing, and actually, if I'm being really honest, we've just started um, talking about doing, is having each engineering, you know, multidiscipline team adopting at least one customer that represents the uh, sort of the, the set of customers um, that we're trying to solve a real problem for. So they can put a name to it and they can understand the structure of, of that company's team and their workflow and the real marketing problems that they're trying to solve. Yes, so we can have empathy. Yes, so we can provide a better solution, but also so we know when it's done. So you mentioned multidiscipline teams. If someone were to try to implement this, this kind of thinking, what would a team look like? Or what, what should the teams be looking like to, to get the work done? So the first chapter is all about organizing teams. Um, and there's, there's two angles that he comes at it from. One is making sure that the teams have all of the skills that are necessary to do all of the work. Um, and the other is making sure that um, people who you are actively investing in growing their skill set um, can be part of teams where they have an opportunity to grow into those things. And that's exactly what we want to do. Um, so what should a team look like? It should look like exactly the right set of skills and people um, to do the work, um, but it should, it, it should also represent the people that you're investing in um, for their growth. Um, actually, so, so one thing that we have here is a couple of different types of, of, of engineers. You know, we have learners, producers, and multipliers. So would you mix those types of uh, people in, in, the, in the path they are in their career on different teams, or would you kind of like stack one team or? Yeah, actually, so there's some really interesting stuff in the book here that we, and Jason and I haven't actually had a chance to talk through. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting is he talks about people who are specialists in a certain area uh, or domain experts should not be floating teammates. They should be full-time on a team. I thought that was, that was a really interesting thought and I haven't had a chance to really fully mentally unpack it. But something that is in the book, um, on that same note that Jason and I have had a chance to talk about, I'm gonna read a quote again, is your senior people, not always the ones you thought were the senior people, have an additional responsibility bringing the less experienced people up to full speed. A highly paid expert shouldn't be highly paid just because she's an expert. She should be highly paid because she's helping other people become experts. And that's exactly, um, I mean, that's almost the definition of, um, in addition to the, the, the technical, um, like the primary engineering output of a senior person, that's almost exactly our expectation for our senior people. Is that also something that you budget for in planning? that mentoring time or I don't think it's really explicit we don't we don't say hey we're gonna spend four hours to pay pair yeah, or whatever yeah. it's more like hey I know that um, uh, a person on our team is still in learner mode we can't fully we can't like in good conscience say hey they're gonna produce as much as someone as a like in producer mode or multiplier mode right um, so you, you kind of just have to like during the planning week say like as part of the commitment, we're going to be able to commit to this, you know, X, X quantity of work. And it's just kind of like a, an organic thing. It's not really explicit in terms of um, setting time, time aside. It's just kind of like a given, if that, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, I think it happens in a couple of different ways, right? Um, one way is that really organic way, right? Like you just, someone's more senior, someone's less senior or less, not even senior, just more experienced in what you're currently doing or less experienced right. in what you're currently doing. It has nothing to do with tenure or anything. Um, 
and that's there's some organic things right but there are some explicit things like i think a really good example is um you know we we have um roles here that are our front-end architecture and our senior architect right that is setting a vision for the tools and the frameworks that we want to use and you know we publish a tech radar of technologies that we want to adopt and things we want to start folding out and one of the things that we've been adopting uh over the last uh you know several months has been uh, react and its various um intricacies (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um and we had a team and you know we had a team that was uh working on a project and and it was uh you know, we were trying to kind of push it to React, right? And, and say like, you know, we, we really, this should really kind of be built in, in React so that it's, uh, you know, following the direction that we want to go. And the people working on it um, were less experienced with React and not really doing it. And so that became their planning week, right? They spent time oh, yeah. in their planning week with people who are experienced in React, learning and diving in and, and kind of going through and getting set up for success, mm-hmm. right? And so um, so I think, it hap- I think it does happen in both ways. I think what's hard is that, um, it requires um, a, a certain self-awareness at the individual level, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to look at a body of work um, and say, I- I'm going to need help with this. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or <laughs> I-, I need help. And usually the way that somebody asks, uh, I think, um, dictates how, what the response is, right? And some, because so, sometimes it is like, I, you know, I understand this, you know, a certain amount and I need help on this other part. Great. Well, let's work on it together. Or, Hey, I do need that deep dive. Can I have a couple of days to, you know, really get my head around, you know, this technology or this framework or this tool set or this library? Um, and so, yeah, I think um, we do. Um, but like Will said, it's not like as explicit, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Of like, you know, 10% of your time is for, you know, uh, making sure that, that you're mentoring, right? Um, I think that explicitness is probably more on the senior in that conversation that we have in their, in their one-on-ones and setting their expectations for, um, how they're supposed to um, provide value to Emma, right? It would be more explicit for them of saying, looking for those opportunities to mentor, to pair, or whatever. I think one of the cool things about uh, our team is uh, most of the people want to be that multiplier, right? You could be a fairly new person in terms of like experience, like outside of Emma, um, but your institutional knowledge here could be very good. Like, say you're here for a year, you're still like, so maybe this is your first year as a developer, but you're, you've been a year at Emma. You have much more... Uh, much more greater grasp of our systems, how the code works, stuff like that. So you could actually take someone that's been coding for 12 years. It's their first day at Emma or the first month at Emma or whatever, right? You can be a multiplier for that person. You can show them the ropes. You can, you can actually, right? You, you actually can help them kick their, their game up a notch, even though you're not necessarily quote unquote, a senior engineer out in the, in the wild, wild west, right? So do you, do you do that when you're budgeting things by what the, ticket or task calls for and what familiarity they might have with that app? So we, we don't really organize our work based on um, how senior someone is. Or how, like, I, I even actually hate using that term because that's not, that's not something we do here. Um, we expect everyone to be able to do the same kind of work no matter your experience level. The expectation that's different between someone that's relatively new developer or someone that's more experienced is the time in which we expect them to do it. Mm -hmm. That's probably the only difference or the help that they would need from Mm -hmm. another person. Um, But again, it's not, it's not explicit. We, we expect a team to go out and and, and tackle the same amount of work than, than any, than any any other team, depending on the, the, the breakdown. Does that answer your question? 
I was kind of asking about per task, if that's a consideration you have. Like you were saying, someone with 12 years but new to the code base might need more time, or is that something that they um, just make up in planning week for that particular app? So I, I think everyone who's on the engineering team here is always learning. Um, mm-hmm. And while there are times where we carve out, like maybe during a planning week, some really intentional time for someone to go on a deep dive into something that they're less familiar with, I think it's, it's just part of sort of the expectation across the board, regardless of um, your experience level in the industry, that there's going to be time taken to learn. Uh, we have a, a, a breadth of technologies that all work together in mysterious ways um, to accomplish really interesting things in the application. Um, and sometimes those are not obvious. And we, uh, we choose to just be a really collaborative organization. Um, there's just an expectation that if you know something, you're probably going to be asked about it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, yes, we are working on bringing some formalization around that, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Um, just enough that people know who to ask. And, and people learn who to ask. Like, you know, I've been mm-hmm. doing React for a while. I get pinged. I help people. Sometimes it takes five minutes. Sometimes it takes 15, 20. And that's just something I do. And it's not a big deal. And it's just, you know, helps other people reach their goals. And it's just I guess a part even, of the job. I guess even if you did know a certain <clears throat> app, if you haven't been in it in a few months, you could have forgot. I mean, maybe people's memories are better than mine. But <laughs> I personally like getting asked, asked questions because I know that it's one of the values that we have here. So when people are asking me stuff, it makes me feel valuable. Mm-hmm. And I know that's, that's kind of a weird kind of dynamic, but um, if people aren't asking me questions that it, it, I feel like I'm not... You're either uh, ignorant or not approachable. <laughs> yeah, either one, right, yeah. yeah. And I want to be super approachable. Yeah. So like I try to make sure that, you know... I think, I think too, I think that question that you're getting at is uh, about, is really about um, I'm an engineer on a team I'm being asked to make a commitment to deliver work by a certain time, mm-hmm. right? And so I want to know that I'm what I'm not doing is putting myself in a death march or sh- stretching myself across my abilities in that commitment. Um, I think that's kind of what you're getting at, right? Of of how you how you take those tasks, right? Um, if it's something you're not familiar with, and, and budget accordingly, like mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and I think it goes back to something that we've kind of alluded to in a couple in a couple different ways, but um, it's a mix of um, an expectation that we try to set that is really hard that, that you have self-awareness and that you're practicing self-awareness, mm-hmm. right. And that you're using self-awareness to raise your voice and raise your concerns. Um, and also something that Scott said earlier, um, around doing, um, uh, you know, doing your work, making your commitments, but not, uh, sacrificing your own, um, your, just not sacrificing your, yourself, right? You're not sacrificing your uh, respectability or whatever. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm drawing a word, a blank on the word. Your self-respect. That's what it is. <laughs> uh, not not uh, sacrificing your self-respect, right? And I think that for, for me, that's like that's where um, that is where making that commitment um, is. It's during that commitment process that it's it's kind of up to 
you, right? Like you're not, if I know that I'm not, um, you know, I'm not capable of being efficient and proficient in this work, then I'm going to make sure that my commitment using, not sacrificing my self-respect and, and using my self-awareness, I'm going to make sure that the commitment matches uh, what I'm comfortable with. Right. Like, um, and see, that's, I think that's one of the like really hard things that we've gone through here Mm -hmm. is that, you know, um, whenever you're trying to get at organizational change, it's just hard. Like it's one of the hardest things ever. Um, and so like when you come out, um, and, and you stand in front of a group of people and you say, okay, look from now on the way that we're going to, we're going to work, right. Is that we're going to put engineer UX and, and product in a room, uh, in, together for a week, uh, to talk about a problem and how we're going to solve it. And then you're going to make a commitment, right. And, and, and we go so far as we're going to write that commitment down on paper and we're going to hang it on the wall mm-hmm. and all this stuff has to be done in two weeks. Right. And it's on the wall, right? It's not just like in your Jira where only developers look, it's, it's hanging on the wall in the office. Um, it's public, it's very transparent. Um, when you're, we're going to, we're going to do this and you're going to have to deliver a feature, a fully working product, right? Every two weeks, like in at least one, right? Like you're delivering every two weeks. Um, you know, there, there was this period of time where some of the reaction was, taking on that commitment or taking on feeling like people were taking on, or I'm being told to do this, or I have to make this commitment or I have to do this, like kind of pushing those things. Um, and what, um, and it, it was, it was a steady repeating of it's your commitment. No one's telling you what to write on. Like when you write out, this is what we're going to deliver in two weeks. You know, Scott as the director of engineering, isn't writing that card for you. Mm -hmm. You know, me and my position as as a VP, I'm not writing that card for you. I'm not telling you this is what you're delivering in two weeks. You're writing that card, right? And so you have the opportunity um, and really the empowerment, right? Um, To make that commitment according to what your capabilities are and and how you understand the problem and what you know you need to get done to to deliver value for the customer. And there's there's we were talking earlier about that, like human instinctive resourcefulness and creativity when you're hit with the right kind of constraints and, and time can be a really healthy constraint. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love this, um, this objection is raised in the book too. Uh, the objection is our team says, we can't get all these features done in two weeks. And the response is, yes, this is a common problem. Often when starting out, a team can't deliver a fully integrated product in two weeks and will ask for more time. Instead of giving your team more time, I suggest giving them less. Ask your team to produce a fully integrated product increment in one week instead of two. Chances are they'll figure out how to do it. They'll see that they need to make a few actual changes and then adjust their attention on getting those changes integrated, tested, and running. Um, I think this is this is one of those things that's really interesting because we had the same just sort of intuitive at the management level um, and intuitive response like, okay, well, if you can't do it in two, what can you do in one, right? Like just to get into that rhythm of the goal is not um, the world in less time the goal is something valuable every time mm-hmm. yeah he goes on to say uh he, he goes on to say right there he's like if you, and if you can't do it in one week what can you do in a day yep right and then he's like well if they say well we can't do anything a day he says well then why are you here <laughs> <laughs> right which is, fired. yeah which, uh, which i think is really which he really follows cool. up with it's funny except i'm serious yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I, I think for me the 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 best example when this really hit home we were working on a project where we had really elaborate designs and like all these things we wanted to do and it was going to be a full rewrite and we looked at it and it's like yeah to do that is going to take you know probably two to three months to really do it like to even like if you're rewriting from something from scratch it's going to take that 
And instead, we took a step back, dug into the code base, made it like refactored what was there into something that was more usable in two weeks, then took another two week and you know expanded that out. And then in four to five weeks, we had solved the problem and made that part of the app a lot better. And it talk, took a lot of collaboration between engineering, product, and UX. And we had meetings where like, you know, UX would say, you know, well, you know, within the confines of how that works, you know, this is going to be easy to use. And then within the confines of how the code worked, it's like, well, I can give you this. Like, this is easy to do. That's hard to do. Like, and there was a lot of give and take. And we did a really good job of just having that conversation and figuring out, you know, what the problem we're trying to solve and how to make this thing easier to use and more intuitive use within what was already there. And we, you know, we were really successful on that. And that was the first time where it really clicked and like it really worked really well for me. And um, it just kind of opened that door. Like it can be done. You just have to change how you work. Cool. So um, as we wrap up a little bit, um, Jason and, and Scott, um, what are some of the like just key takeaways? If you were to, if you were to like go to another company and like as a consultant and say, hey, this is how we did it at Emma, what would you tell them to get to get, to get going? I would tell them, so we have a, an all-hands event every couple of weeks where we bring the product and engineering group together. And uh, let's see, that would have been three weeks ago. I gave a presentation on, on this topic, on what does it mean for value to be at the top of the pyramid? What does that mean? Um, and it means that if you took nothing away from that presentation, it means that regardless of your discipline, regardless of your place in the hierarchy, regardless of, of your, your tenure at the company, the thing that we care about, the place where we come together and collaborate is on a real problem for real people. And that's what's valuable. Um, and that that has to be at the center of the conversation. And our responsibility when we get down into individual teams is to do that in the smallest slices, the tallest, skinniest that we can find um, together, having that conversation that Rodney just talked about. And understanding that there's two sides to value. There's the side where we're trying to solve a real business problem for ourselves, right? We're managing real money. We spend real money to release these things. Um, in order for us to keep doing this for a living at this company, we have to spend less money delivering them than we're going to get for them on the other side, on average. And then we're trying to solve on the other side a very real problem for someone else's company um, and for them and their job. And those two things have equal weight um, and they have to both be considered at the same time. I think that's that's what I would take anywhere anywhere I go. Yeah, I, um, I would... I would definitely agree uh, that it's, you know, that determining that value is, is, is the hugest thing. Um, I think the short, the short answer would probably be um, that idea of um, always being done, you know, which is repeated a couple times through the Ron Jeffries book through the nature of software development is that um, the goal is because of the tall skinnies, you're just always done. It's never, you know, he has this quote that I think is, um, you know, kind of that kind of, wraps up this idea but he says um you know we can't accept 90 percent done it's either done or it's not right like, um and so that always being done allows you to um constantly be shipping because again it's not it's not valuable until the intended user can use it um, but i think uh, above that though you know if i if i was going into any anything you know the thing that kicked all of this off for me 
um, and kind of coming to this place and then, and then wandering, kind of getting to a lot of these ideas, um, and then wandering into this Ron Jeffries book was, um, another, was actually another book, um, called A Beautiful Constraint, uh, how to transform your limitations into advantages and why it's everyone's business. Um, and, uh, I, I can, I can say that there, there are very few books that I would ever say that were life-changing for me. Um, and that was one of them. Um, and it's, and it's all about, kind of that central theme about working inside of constraints and you're embracing them. And there's this, uh, he, the authors of that book quote, uh, the composer, um, Le- uh, Leonard Bernstein. And he said that, uh, to achieve great things, you need to, two things, right? You need a plan and not quite enough time. Right. <laughs> um, and, and really that, that's what, uh, the, all of this harbors just for me personally, uh, in this idea that I really believe in, that I really feel is, is a part of like who I am, um, and that is that um, every every person wants to be creative, right, and wants to be um, expressive um, with whatever craft that they're doing and whatever project that they're working on. Whether you're a developer or, or a nurse or you know uh, a mortician or whatever, you want to be, um, you know, you want to be creative and you want to be expressive, and um, and a lot of times. Uh, what we do is we just get caught in like the rote dependencies or the path or this is the way it is or this is the way you know for engineering it's well yeah I could build that but that's not how the system works right and so um, a a lot of that book is about breaking those path dependencies and saying you know well yeah it works like that right now but it doesn't have to right and so and the way that you um, the short the shortest you know kind of uh, synopsis of that book is that one of the best ways to to kind of trick your brain to break out of those path dependencies is to wrap a hard constraint around it, right? And whether that's time or financial or some set or some some other set of resources, um, if you embrace it, you know they they talk in that book about how you move from the response to a constraint is you're either a victim and you say I you know I I can't do anything about this or you're a neutralizer which is just um, I'm going to find a workaround right I'm going to make it well enough or you're a transformer. Uh, not like an Autobot or anything like that, but like um, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna take that constraint and I'm gonna embrace it to the point that it's going to challenge me to deliver something that is transformative. It's even better than what I could have done. Um, and the authors of the books talk about how um, it's those aren't fixed states. You can actually move through them, right? Um, you can start as a victim and end up as a trans, as as a transformer. Again, not not an Autobot or a Decepticon, but um, <laughs> but uh, but that to me that's kind of where that's what I would try to take anywhere, right? Is that, um, there's just this idea that I really believe in that there's power in limit in limiting yourself, right? Um, there's power in saying, uh, I have this box to work in and that box gives you actually all the freedom and all mm-hmm. the liber- liberty in the world. Right. Um, and so just how do you take that idea and then just kind of keep packing it down until it's about engineering. Right. Preach. Great. Is that what you said? Yeah, no. Oh. <laughs> I should have. I was just. I said, great, great. <laughs> You're like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, Want to do picks? Yeah, let's do it. I've got one. So I think last time I talked about uh, hacking of email, and I want to talk about physical hacking today. Something I just learned about. Um, apparently, like ninety. You know those like cylinder locks uh, for your home. You know on doors. Apparently, like 90% of them have this easy way to be broken into called uh, lock bumping. Have, have y'all heard of this? Okay, well, I, I'm, I told you again, I'm late. 
I wish I could find some cutting edge thing once, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, you can order these off Amazon. It just, it just blew my mind. So, um, if you, it's kind of crazy that Amazon sells them. That's like I know, right? The quickest way to get on a list somewhere. It's like someone ordered a <laughs> right. log kit on my list. Right. Um, and so I'll be going to Home Depot this weekend, and <laughs> hopefully those that didn't know about it will too. Uh, so this week I'm going to pick uh, Make Nashville is opening a makerspace. What? Uh, yes. So it's super cool, and it's coming soon. Uh, Scott can probably give a little bit more details. That was going to be my pick too. So yeah, Make Nashville, we've, uh, we've got a lease on a building in East Nashville at 947 Woodland. It's awesome. We've got over 3,000 square feet of warehouse space that we're getting prepped for woodworking and metalworking and vacuum forming and 3D printing and laser cutting and all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, there'll be electronics, um, a lab for for younger makers, and it's gonna be absolutely amazing. Um, right now, we're looking for a couple of things. We're really interested in um, volunteers, anybody who's interested in coming and help paint or clean or move tools and set up workbenches. Um, and we're also ready to accept memberships. Um, and so if you're interested in becoming a member, reach out to info at makenashville.org. Um, or you can reach out to us on social media. Uh, you can find links at the makenashville.org to the, the Twitter and um, Instagram and all the other accounts. You can reach out and we'll, we'll get back to you. Um, memberships are, are running around $75 for an individual membership for access to the facility. It's gonna be awesome. If you're interested in volunteering or becoming a member, one of the best ways is just to come to one of the meetings People get together and show off all the weird stuff we're working on. Next meeting is on June 21st. Uh, so I was going to pick uh, November. Uh, we are um, we just lo uh, locked in dates for our venue. They're kind of weird, and I apologize. I know some people are going to be like, "What the hell?" Um, is it we, not November? It's November. It's in November, <laughs> and that's and that's why it's kind of weird. We could have we could have done like September or December, and probably got a like a better like date combination. But so we're going to have the kickoff party is going to be on the 19th, which is a Saturday. The conference days are going to be Sunday and Monday. And I know that's kind of weird, um, but that's the only day, the only two consecutive days we can get at the same venue we had last year. And we're kind of doing it where we lock in the same venue two years in a row, which makes planning a little bit easier. So maybe next year we'll find another venue and it'll be a little bit better. But um, hopefully everybody can make it. Uh, we're going to do the, uh, the call for papers here soon. And we're going to be uh, accepting uh, pre-orders. Uh, so stay tuned on November.org. Uh, right now it has all the old information on it. But um, pretty soon I'll have a new version of the website up. And we'll be uh, seeing you soon. Uh, my pick is f for um, every year, or for the last two years, Emma has done a marketing conference called Marketing United, um, which has been just amazing. Um, but this year in particular, I found a lot of interest in the fact that Aaron Draplin was a speaker uh, from Draplin Design Co uh, Company. Such a great and he's talk. just amazing. He's an amazing guy anyway. He's been a hero of mine for a long time. And uh, to get to see him speak uh, was pretty awesome. And we just posted, uh, Emma just posted the video of his talk yesterday. Um, so if you go to uh, the marketunited.com site to look through the videos, look for Aaron Draplin and uh, watch his talk. You won't regret it. Um, it's, it's very inspiring. It's very funny. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> cool. 
Cool, and uh, we're kind of running low on time, so we're not gonna list up list off all of the events uh, today on the show. However, we will put links to the events, the coming upcoming events, on our show notes. So stay tuned. So thanks for listening to the Nash Devcast. Uh, be sure to follow us uh, on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, all of those places that you can find us on social media. Uh, and also, it'd really help us out if you got onto iTunes and left us a review, um, preferably a five star review. That'd be great. Uh, and you know, say some nice words. Um, That'd be awesome. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Relationary Marketing. This episode was produced by Clark Buckner and edited by Rodney Norris and Clark Buckner.